This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good afternoon. My name is Ian Mankini. I'm Suffolk University Law School's Director of Electronic Marketing and Enrollment Management. I'm really lucky today to be joined by one of our esteemed faculty members, Professor Charles Kindergan. Professor Kindergan is a member of our faculty who teaches family law, and he also is recently a co-author of a book with adjunct faculty member Maureen McBrien entitled Assisted Reproductive Technology, A Lawyer's Guide to Emerging Law and Science. It's now in its second edition. Professor Kindergan, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. If we could begin, you were recently quoted in the Wall Street Journal. I was wondering if you could talk about what that story was about. Yes, the story had to do with the divorce cases in which the subject of controversy is what to do with the cryopreserved embryos that people have produced. And in connection with that, it's certainly an area of law that has emerged in recent years. It's only been a little more than 20 years since we have developed in vitro fertilization as a method of human reproduction, closer to 30, I guess, now. But over those 30 years, the number of cryopreserved embryos has dramatically grown. And when Myrene and I did a study for the Villanova University Law Review back in 2004, we discovered at that time that there were about half a million cryopreserved embryos in the United States alone. Certainly that number has doubled. In the meantime, nobody knows the exact number because there's no requirement that this be reported. But the fact of the matter is that with in vitro fertilization being used by a number of different kinds of couples, certainly, for example, people who have been experiencing infertility problems, in addition, more and more non-married but cohabiting couples who have the same exact infertility problems as married people have been using this technology more. And in addition, of course, same-sex couples increasingly using methods of assisted reproductive technology. And the reason that the numbers are important is that with the large number of divorces in the United States, actually the number of divorces has leveled off now in recent years, but it's still very substantial. The fact of the matter is that if a couple have undergone this reproductive technology, they will have these embryos cryopreserved, and they do that so that it's not necessary for the woman to undergo the medical procedures, including the extract of eggs and the use of fertility drugs, so that if they produce a large number of embryos, a few, of course, might be produced immediately and used, but many will be cryopreserved, by which I mean deep frozen, 196 degrees below Fahrenheit, and they can be cryopreserved for years. Sometimes people actually forget about them. Sometimes they walk away from it. Sometimes they stop paying storage fees, and sometimes they just get divorced. One of the parties wants to use the embryos for one purpose, maybe to donate them to another couple, to donate them to research or to use them themselves, either by implantation in the woman or by hiring a surrogate to carry the fetus. So this is a new phenomenon in our society, and it has created, as you can well imagine, great difficulty when the parties are married and getting divorced or for that matter when they're not married but they're undergoing a separation and they can't agree on what to do 
about these embryos. I use the word embryos. I'm using that word more in a legal sense, certainly not in a medical sense, because we're really talking here about a very primitive collection of cells which have not yet reached the stage of fetal life, but they are complete in terms of the human genetic makeup. And so they are certainly something, much dispute whether we'll call them property or something else, but it's very, very real that these have potential to become a human baby. That alone raises questions about their legal status. There may be several ways of thinking about it. We could consider them property. After all, when people get divorced, they divide up their property, or the judge does it for them. On the other hand, there's something that many people would find objectionable to describing the human set of cells, genetically human product, as indeed just property. It's not like a television or a radio or an automobile or something like that. So how does the law resolve this? Well, there are basically four ways that have developed. And among others, of course, there's a possibility that the couple themselves have entered into a contract. So they've decided, if in the event of a divorce, we can't resolve the question, then by contract have we agreed? There are some states that have said, we think this is a good solution. People ought to be able to decide for themselves what happens to the embryos that they have produced. On the other hand, there are some states that have said that this is not really appropriate for contract. This again is not saying, look, you take the dog and I'll take the automobile or something like that. And so there are some states, including our own of Massachusetts, which have said we're not going to allow these issues to be decided by enforcing a pre-existing contract because this is too serious a matter. In effect, if you signed a contract with your spouse, five, six years before your divorce, and you decide that your spouse is going to get control over these embryos, which could be used to produce children, and you're going to do it by means of a contract, then you're really asking the court to enforce parenthood on a party who now objects to the use of these embryos. And there's something in our law that suggests that parenthood ought not to be decided by contract, but by a decision to have children or not to have children. There's another possibility, of course. Some states, including New Jersey, for example, have said, well, yes, we will recognize the right of contract to decide what to do with these embryos. But on the other hand, we recognize that up to the point where the embryos would be now implanted into the body of a woman or subject to destruction, depending on what the contract provides, that we also recognize a right of a party to change their mind up to that point. And finally, of course, there's a possibility of enforcing an agreement, but only as to the destruction or disposition, if you want, of the embryos for non-productive use, as, for example, for medical research, and there is a New York case that so recognizes. I've only cited a few states because there is no uniform law on this. And it's a very, very tough and emotional issue. For some people, particularly, for example, just as an example, a woman who is approaching the age of the end of her fertility, either because of her age or perhaps because she has lost her fertility 
their ability to produce eggs, maybe by virtue of undergoing chemotherapy or something like that. This is very troublesome to her if she's now going to be prevented just because she and her husband or boyfriend are ending their relationship, that she's going to be precluded from having a genetically connected child, even though these embryos have been produced. So it's probably an area where we ought to have some legislation. But there is no legislation in most states. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that legislators would be reluctant to jump into the middle of this by passing laws that would decide what legal controls should be applied in a case like this. The American Bar Association Model Act on Assisted Reproductive Technology, and I chaired the committee that drafted that for the American Bar Association, that says the critical moment is implantation. And up to that point in time, a party ought to be able to withdraw even if their sperm or their eggs were used in vitro, which literally means fertilization in a dish or a test tube, even if that took place earlier. So it's the implantation that probably is the critical moment. Most people, I think, that's the moment when human conception occurs. There's a great debate about that, but that seems to be the critical moment in terms of the legal issue. Now, there are decisions in some places that are to the contrary. There was a decision of the Supreme Court of Israel on this very subject where the court said that once the male consents to his sperm being used to fertilize the woman's eggs, then it's the woman's choice from that point out. But again, the law is hardly clear on that. There is a decision in the European Court of Human Justice that says that a person ought to be able to withdraw their consent at any moment, that's based on an English case, up to the time of implantation. So there's no answers to this. This proceeds on a case-by-case basis. It's one of the great challenges in reproductive law and family law to try to straighten out these issues so that people will have a better sense of what their own rights and their own liabilities may be. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.